0: This morning, we are continuing in our series on the book of Revelation, and we are in the home stretch. So sometimes things have been hard, sometimes things have been confusing, but we are now in the series of chapters where we're not just telling you God wins, you actually get to read it, that God wins. Super excited this morning to uh, be sharing with you about the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, or the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. So I'm going to invite Caleb this morning to read to us.
1: This morning's scripture reading is a responsive reading from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9 and 11 through 16. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray for a moment. Almighty God, we long for this day, but until this day that we're about to read about, we ask that you would keep us, preserve us, draw us closer to yourself, make us more like you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, again, I said the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb, depends on how your Bible wants to call it. They're all interchangeable. I will definitely talk about them. But before we launch into that, I would like to talk to you about the bookends of this passage. Caleb just read a good chunk of them. And if you are familiar with chapter 19 of Revelation or you quickly read further, uh, you will see that um, as much as we're talking about a wedding today, and that's exciting, the beginning of this chapter and the end, end of this chapter, don't feel wedding-esque whatsoever. And I think it's important that we just take a minute to pause and talk about why that is and what the meaning of these kind of two bookends are before we get into the meat of the passage, because context matters. Scripture doesn't exist in these isolated chunks. It is one cohesive story, and so we can't ignore parts that are, let's say, less appetizing, So, at the beginning of this passage, we see a continuation of what Jimmy talked about last week. And if you weren't with us last week, that sermon is totally worth listening to, especially because it unpacks this image of the great prostitute, Babylon, which uh, is a representation of all of the institutions of this world, but also all of our desires, all of the things by which people would... uh, switch for what God intends for them. And we see here this praise in heaven that what is described in chapter 18 comes to pass, that Babylon the great, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, verse 2, is avenged. And verse 3, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, Wow! Then we skip on to verse 11 to the end of the chapter, and we again see a scene of war, of battle. We see a rider on a white horse. Up until this point, riders have seemed to be very scary. Remember, four horsemen, that whole thing. And this rider is on a horse. His garment is dipped in blood. He's got an entire army behind him. And he, as well, is rallied against all of the powers of this world. He's identified as Jesus, though this doesn't necessarily seem like the Jesus any of us met in vacation Bible school. And Caleb didn't read this part, but um, the war's going to happen, and obviously he wins, and the weirdest verse in all of Scripture, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him that was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is also the word of the Lord. A little harder to say thanks be to God, maybe, but it's there. Here's why I want to talk to you about that. Sometimes we can trip over a violent God. And again, especially if we're about to talk about a wedding and an incredible picture of our God. This juxtaposition can seem so jarring sometimes as to make our culture want to do a switch, to make our culture want to say, okay I can take these pieces of that God but not these pieces over here. And what I want to tell you this morning is you and I need a violent God. That can seem a little counterintuitive but you and I need a violent God. Now, we also need an infinitely wise God who can choose how to use violence, an infinitely powerful God who can use said violence in the right way without uh, causing damage that he does not intend to do. But we need a violent God. We need a violent God because, as Jimmy talked about last week, Babylon is real, The effects of sin and Satan and illness and death are real in this world. And as we feel those, we need deliverance from them. And deliverance doesn't simply come from a snap of the fingers. It doesn't simply come from everyone eventually getting together and being good enough to hold hands and sing kumbaya. Now, I praise God for the efforts of peace, even efforts that we're seeing of unity among some of our world leaders over the last week or two. I continue to pray for Ukraine. But I, I've had a number of conversations, for instance, with individuals, both students and adults, about Ukraine over the last week and a half. And it's, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to see that we hold in tension this deep feeling of desire and sadness and lament and also a deep apathy that says, you know, it's there, but it's, you know, oceans away and not a big deal. We need a God who is sad about such pain and death, and we need a God who will do something about it. And so in passages like the beginning and the end of chapter 19, we see that kind of God, We see a God who rescues and a God who rescues fully, a God who is sad about injustice and a God who does something about it, not simply sanctions or resolutions, but final evil-ending power. And so we worship him. Problem, sometimes as much as, you know, we we are scared of that God, we also kind of want that God but it's hard to hold that God, this pseudo Old Testament feeling God, against a loving Jesus. But the text does just that right now. And that's why it's important for us to mention these bookends. Because in the middle of smoke going up forever and ever, and birds gorging themselves on the flesh of evil forever, is a wedding. And it's important to talk about. The wedding feast. Again, and I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is one of those passages of Scripture that I want to both caution us and encourage us. Caution you, don't bring too much of your own cultural constructs to bear on the passage. At the same time, at least bring some of them, all right? Weddings are fun and awesome and exciting. Some of you are preparing for a wedding even today. At the same time, others of you, marriage is a hard topic. You might be unmarried and have a desire to be married. You might be uh, someone who is divorced or who is widowed, and there is a deep A sense of lament and sadness associated with the idea of marriage. I get that. I think actually that's one of the reasons why putting this passage, it is the central focus of the chapter, but it doesn't come without the bookends. To be honest, this almost sounds like a a trivial thing, but it's actually a big deal if um, sometimes when I teach this to students, especially to teenage boys, they deeply struggle with the idea of associating at all with being a bride just hard. It's an image that's hard, And whether that's you or whether that's you because of understandings of marriage, understand this is not the only image we get of the church. Again, that's why the bookends are important. But it is a worthwhile image. We're going to get an army here later, but we're a bride. And let's redeem that here this morning. But I want you to think when you think of this idea of, of the wedding supper of the Lamb, we need to bring into it celebration. We need to bring into it joy. This is the culminative event of everything that has happened in Scripture. This is the kingdom of God, again, finally winning. And we're actually going to see this happen um, a couple of times in the next couple of chapters. It's describing the same event. So it's not like the end of the Lord of the Rings where you think it's the end and you leave the theater and then it's not there and then you do it again and then it's not there. No, this is the same thing we're seeing a couple of different times. You'll see it again in chapter 20 when we see talk of this beast and him dying. No, this is um, another version of this culminative moment in all of history where sin and Satan and death are gone forever. And eventually we'll see again another version of it described in greater detail when we see in Revelation 21 that there's no more crying, there's no more tears, there's no more darkness at all. God himself becomes the light. Now, different cultures will emphasize different um, aspects of things in their rituals. Most Western weddings, uh, we actually emphasize uh, purity, we emphasize holiness, we, enter, we emphasize the solemnness and the importance of the vow of the commitment itself. Um, those are great and wonderful. Um, they're not the only things, of course, obviously in marriage, and they're not the only things that get emphasized, especially if you've ever been um, at a non-Western wedding or even a wedding uniquely both Western and non-Western. Um, if you've ever been before to an Indian wedding, Color, smell, sound, dancing. These are all um, things that would actually probably be more familiar to John as he's writing this and to the readers of John than our wedding ceremonies today with kind of the more divisions of ritual and whatnot. Again, not a bad thing at all, but wanting you to picture this because it's yet another place where I think culturally we have this idea that the end of all things, heaven, the, the heaven coming to earth, the, the, the culmination of everything is kind of like spiritually boring. You know, th- this idea, you might think of like a wedding feast. Well, does this mean that like there's just an infinitely long table and Jesus is kind of over there at one end and I fall somewhere on, you know, the seating arrangement, and eventually, you know, he will work his way over to say hi to me or something like that. These are honest pictures. You can look at art of the wedding picture of uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb and see layouts like that. We shouldn't think of it that way. Many weddings at this time were multi-day events, multi-day events of feasting and of toasting, of dancing and of joy. And in the same way, as we near the end of the book of Revelation, we just need to check ourselves again and again that the end of all things is not an end of all things. It is a recommitment a recreation of all of the things you and I find incredible God given joy and excitement and fulfillment in, stripped of their sin, stripped of their darkness, stripped of their death. I said it a month and a half ago, but I'll say it again. You are actually probably more bored right now. Not, not just probably, you are more bored right now than you ever will be. Why? Because God will renew his creation and you will live in a new heaven and a new earth that is meant for you. It is meant for you to commune with God. It is meant for you to commune with that which he has made. We need to envision a party. Now, all that being said, let's look at a piece of art for a second. I was a, um, my first job actually was an art educator um, and so please excuse me if I geek out and give you more detail here than you actually want. Um, this is one of the most important pieces of art in the world. It's called the Ghent Altarpiece. Um, it's in Ghent, Belgium. Um, it was painted in the 1400s by Hubert and Jan van Eyck, um, famous realist Renaissance painters. It actually falls because of, it's important because it falls right in this sort of hinge point gap between the Middle Ages where they painted stuff really crazy and uh, then the Renaissance where they started to move back into realism um, and they were kind of the forefathers of that. Um, It's also one of the most stolen artworks in all of history. It's been stolen 13 times. Napoleon had this. Bismarck had this. Hitler had this. Writing Calvinists at one point had this. And by this... We're not just talking about a painting. We're talking about a 14 foot by 11 foot series of cabinets. It was an altar piece, not a painting. So it would have been effectively, if you kind of see the stairs here, imagine an 11-foot tall series of wardrobes here on the stairs. And here's the cool thing. Normally, these would have been um, closed, And there would have been some artwork on the front, and it's really, really cool, but on feast days, like a wedding feast, they would open up the doors, and this beautiful color would fill the cathedral, and this would be right in the center. In fact, the the whole altarpiece tells the story of God and his people from Genesis to Revelation beginning to end, but this is the center, and it is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as I said, it's 600 some odd years old. Um, This is the middle, the lamb. Back in the day, most of the uh, painting that was done was done with egg tempura, um, which means uh, paint that was made at least in part with egg yolks and other things, and it was varnished the same way. And so if you've ever seen an old painting, there's lots of uh, cracking. It often yellows, you can kind of see the uh, lamb right here in the middle. And so, of course, there has to be a restoring that's done to try to strip away and re-varnish to protect the artwork. And this being a 600-year-old series of paintings that have been stolen 13 different times that we know of, um, it needs a lot of restoration from time to time. And the first restoration was in 1550, about 100 years or so after it was painted. I'm going somewhere, I promise. Some of you are like, this is awesome. Others of you are like, art class. Um, Here's what's interesting. In 2017, the Belgian government again commissioned a number of restorers using modern techniques to restore this artwork. What the restorers found when they were restoring it was that this lamb was not the original center of the painting, it was this, this lamb. They were flabbergasted because the Van Eyck's didn't paint, as I said, in weird medieval abstract. They painted realistic art, and yet they gave the lamb human eyes. Of course, we know, we've read, and we've already been hinting at the idea that this, this lamb. It's been said throughout Revelation, is Jesus, the Lamb slain, the sacrifice for us. But what's amazing, art historians believe now that instead of this just being a mistake, a restorer who just, you know, wasn't nearly as good as the Van Eycks and decided to make it like that instead, instead that it was actually probably intentional that when this altarpiece was open, as I said, there was lots of color and excitement and whatnot. And at the same time, people felt the lamb was staring into their soul. They were haunted by this. Instead of it being a joyous thing to celebrate, it was fearful. And so they glossed over it, literally for almost 600 years. I think the marriage supper of the Lamb does both for you and I. You might have been raised in a tradition that used the book of Revelation, as I've said before, kind of as a weapon or a mallet to say, hey, this is really, really scary. Things are bad. You need to get right with God. Now, we react very harshly and strongly to that, saying that this book is about hope. It's God saying that he loves us and we're gonna be okay because he wins. But sometimes the pendulum can swing too far the other way too. We are faced with the reality, the question, are you gonna be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? So I wanna talk to you about that question, if I could, very briefly, in a way that I hope doesn't feel scary but actually is hopeful, even as it challenges us to wonder, are we there? The first thing I want to say is, you don't deserve to be there. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oops, guess what? In a certain respect, we aren't invited. Wedding feasts were common. We see in the Old Testament this image of God being married to his people, very, very common. So Jesus uses it a bunch in his teaching. There's two primary times that he talks about this great wedding banquet or celebratory banquet. The first one's in Matthew 22. And in this one, the master sends out a bunch of invitations to all of these people who he wants to come to the banquet. And they don't show up. Again, banquets lasted a long time, so he's concerned. So he sends his servants out to go personally find these people and bring them. And the servants don't come back. Finally, he says, what's going on here? He sends his son. And the people are actually so mad at the master that they murder the messenger, his son. And so the master is incredibly wrathful and, of course, visits his wrath out on these people and then says, fine, you all who are invited, you don't get to come. Bring others in instead and invite others to my banquet. He goes into even greater detail in Luke chapter 14 when, again, a master throws a banquet. He invites a bunch of people. This time they're not so violent, but they give excuses as to why they can't come. And the master says, fine. Fine bring those who are undeserving, bring the lame, bring the crippled, bring the blind. This is not at all a a knock on disability, but in scripture, this would be a massive juxtaposition if as a whole, a master is throwing a very opulent banquet um, with clothes that often the master would even give to people so that they would look even better. Um, And suddenly you look out and those who are have these clothes on are those who would never be seen at any kind of social event in Judaism whatsoever. You and I don't deserve to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, but we're there. And we're there because of Jesus. The the groom, the groom literally made it so that the people who were supposed to come and decided not to come get replaced by those who have no reason to be there and yet are. If, if you this morning or, or any morning that you sit in worship here are like, this is, you know, this is my thing, this is my cultural thing, I come here, I like the music or I like the people or I like the person next to me and they come so I show up, I would challenge you, do you live your life in such a way that you think whatever is to come, I'll even kind of give you that for just a moment, that whatever is to come, that you are good enough, strong enough, powerful enough to get there, to make it, to be worthy. Friend, that is exhausting us as a culture. It is killing us as a culture to think that we're good enough and then having to live up to that every second of every day. You don't deserve to be there and that's okay because the groom has made a way. Now that might be a bunch of you, but I'll tell you at least where I'm at. I love Jesus, I know Jesus, but I will tell you where I often find myself is that I think I'm going to be the schmuck in the corner who, like, snuck in through the, like, waiter entrance in the back of the wedding feast. And I'm going to kind of be hanging out there in the corner, and I'm going to smell bad, and I'm going to, like, look like I don't belong at all, but, like, I'm the crazy uncle third removed that had to be there. That's who I think I am most of the time. Because even though I know I don't deserve to be there and I know what Jesus did for me, I kind of sometimes will leave it there. Because I know my heart, I know how I struggle. But Scripture doesn't leave it there. See, you're actually beginning to look like you belong at the wedding banquet. Not because of your own efforts, but look at the text. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is one of the few times that um, I would uh, like one version of the Bible against others. Um, The ESV does do a really good job here of emphasizing not this, what, I have to clothe myself for this banquet? No, but this. It was granted to her to clothe herself. God is enabling you, even now, to start looking like the incredible, awesome, multicolored, multi-layered party bride that will one day be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I know you struggle with sin. I know you struggle with not having victory over the thing that you have been struggling with for 20 years in your Christian life. And I know sometimes, because I feel it too, that sometimes you sit there and you start adding up the years and you're going, am I missing God? Is he missing me? Is something just not there? Am I off? Is this always the way it's going to be? But God does tell us in his word that he has prepared good works for us to do, that we might walk in him, and he is transforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus so that we do those very things. That actually means God looks at you and he sees two things right even now. He sees Jesus. He doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. But he also sees all of the incredible, wonderful things that you are doing in his world that he has equipped and prepared for you to do. Not out of some way of trying to impress him, not out of some way of trying to make it so that, yes, I am actually worthy of that invitation that I got. No. It's because he loves you and he has granted to you to begin to look more and more like him, to begin to look more and more like the bride that we will one day be. So friends, I mean, we all need to be realistic. We need to talk about our sin. We need to uh, be accountable to one another. Please don't hear me, uh, you know, belaying any of that. But I think sometimes we're really hard on ourselves. I think sometimes we forget the gospel, the whole gospel, We apply this get out of hell free, I like Jesus, he likes me enough to keep me around card. But we don't embrace the he likes me enough to get married to me. He likes me enough to commit everything to me. He likes me enough because of what he has done to spend forever with me even when I spat in his face. Friends, we need to live in light of the fact that he is actually excited to see you and I at the wedding feast of the Lamb. God himself is excited to see you. It has to sink in with us. For all of the brokenness and all of the sin and all of the failure that we have brought to him time and time again, these ripped up rags Isaiah describes of our good works, the crumpled up crayon drawing that my kids bring to me and says, Daddy, is this good? God is excited to see you. So that kid there... You don't recognize him? Just shave this a little bit. I hadn't eaten uh, since like 10 o'clock that morning. It was 7 o'clock that night. I was nauseous. At one point, I had started to do this. Um, I was late for my own wedding. I missed my uh, parents and grandparents all walking down the aisle because it was an outdoor wedding, and there was no place for us to, like, hide, and so we were down the street at Starbucks and, you know, get a furious call. They're walking down the aisle. They're walking down the aisle. So, of course, had to run, but she was hiding in a limo the whole time, and so, you know, I got to see Chrissy's face, and I just lost it, and I lost it, And this is just an earthly marriage. I mean, I love my marriage. It's wonderful, but it's hard. Even that day was hard. We have mixed emotions and feelings and memories of it. But one day, we will have a perfect wedding. If you haven't been married and you long to be married, you will have a perfect wedding. You don't wanna get married, it's okay. You'll have a perfect wedding. Marriage has been hard for you. You'll have a perfect wedding. Marriage has been a place of deep sadness and loss. You'll have a perfect wedding. Even marriage being something that's great, but not everything, you're gonna have a perfect wedding. You will have a perfect wedding, brothers and sisters, because you have no clue how much your God loves you. We get this tiny foretaste right now as we sing, as we pray, as we read God's word, as we see him being faithful over and over again in our lives. We get the tiniest foretaste of everything God has for us one day. in all of the brokenness and all of the sadness and all of the real complexities of your life and mine, which I know it's sometimes a weird thing to sit and look at you all and just know what you guys are going through. I never want us to say, just hope in Jesus and get this weird fake smile on our face that the world sees as Christians just sticking our fingers in our ears and not actually caring about the world. But I do want to embrace the reality of how much God loves us such that with all of the complexity and all of the brokenness and all of the tears and all of the death that you and I will walk side by side in until glory, we do get to say, it's going to be okay. God loves you. We're going to make it.